Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is a man who made the most of a major league career that was limited to parts of only four seasons. Make no mistake about it, while he played in only one full season in the majors, it was as a world champion. He led the National League outfielders in double plays, scored a pivotal run in the 1969 World Series. It is a thrill to welcome a member of the 1969 Miracle Mets, Rod Gaspar to 540 AM Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Rod. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It's absolutely our pleasure. You know, you're a two-sport star at Lakewood High School in California. You're playing baseball and basketball. You're named All-City Athlete in 1964. You then get a, a baseball scholarship to Long Beach State University. What did you learn playing under Coach Bob Westhoff as a 49er? Well, he was one of my favorite people of all time, just a wonderful man, uh, uh, before I went to Long Beach State, after I got out of Lakewood High School, I went to Long Beach City College, uh, junior college there, and I played baseball there. Now, coming out of high school, I wasn't anything special. I was still, you know, real skinny, still growing, and, uh, you know, I wasn't even first team all city or all league or whatever. I mean, but I was tenacious, and I, I had a lot of physical ability for my side. When, when I went to Long Beach City College, I wasn't even starting on that team. I made the club. I wasn't even playing on that team starting the season. Then the coach got smart and put me in, and then I just, you know, from that point on, I took off as a baseball player in 1965 at Long Beach City College. And I, I think I led the, the, well, I did lead the team in hitting. Might have led the league in hitting, and, as the MVP on the team, and so on and so forth. So I played one year at Long Beach City College, and then went over to uh, then uh, Long Beach State. Offered me a scholarship. Bob Westoff was the coach, and I uh, I took it. And then I found out later on I had other people offer too, but I'd already committed to Long Beach State. So I went over there uh, to Long Beach State in 1966. Okay. So I would have been a sophomore at Long Beach State College at that time and had two real good years there. The first year I hit just under 400, I think I hit 390-something, and second year I hit 340-something or whatever. Both years at Long Beach State College, uh, Mr. Westoff had me uh, hitting first normally. And, uh, you know, the, the guy was just an excellent man. Excellent baseball coach. Learned a lot from him, as I did a number of our coaches growing up in Long Beach. Uh, my probably my favorite guy I played for, who I learned more baseball from than anybody, was a man named Joe Hicks, who uh, him and uh, who him along with a few two other guys, uh, they started what this uh, sports company called Diamond Sports. Uh, are you familiar with that, Mark? I've Diamond heard of it. Sports? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's done real well over the yeah. years. Unfortunately, Joel passed away in the early 90s from cancer, but he was one of my favorite, favorite men. He, he was a very strong Christian, great family, great guy. And I tell you, the smartest baseball man I ever ran into before I signed uh, professionally as far as learning the game of baseball. I learned more from Hicks. 
Joe Hicks and anybody. But at Long Beach State, Bob Westoff was was wonderful. You know, just another excellent coach, uh, which we did. We had a lot, a lot of real good coaches in the Long Beach area at that time. And I played two years for Mr. West. I always called Mr. Westoff <laughs> even to this day. But I played two years for Bob Westoff at Long. Hello. I think we lost. Hey, oh, no, like, yeah, you like I said, I was uh, drafted both year by six, in 1966 by the Mets in 1967. I didn't sign, of course, 66, and then signed with uh, the Mets in 1967 out of Long Beach State. Well, it's interesting because one person who doesn't get enough credit for the, the 69 Mets when you talk about them is a guy who actually was the last player to bat at Ebbets Field, a guy in his career batted over 300 three times, twice for the Cubs and for the Pirates during the 50s. But his right. fingerprints are all over that 69 team as he's the one of the scouts who recommended Duffy Dyer, Gary Gentry, and yourself to the Mets. What do you think DeFondi saw in you when he was scouting that he liked enough to recommend the Mets to draft you not once, as you mentioned, but twice? Yeah, D was a good guy. He, uh, he and Nelson Burbrink, who later on, uh, he was like the chief scout guy. or something. I, I forget what Nelson was, but he was the main guy out in California. But eventually, as you probably know, Nelson Burbrink got a front office job yep. in New York. Yep. Uh, another real good, you know, he signed Tom Seaver. I mean, he signed all the, you know, all the big guys. And D, uh, like I said, was a scout who signed, uh, you know, who recommended Duffy and Gary and myself. Uh, but I think what he saw in me was just a tenacious, aggressive uh, ball player who, you know, I, I, they have, they call guys five. You know, there's five tools for a ball player. Uh, I think they're what speed, throwing, hitting, fielding, and power. Hitting for power. Well, I had four of the five. Uh, I didn't have that much power because I didn't try to hit a home runs. But I think D just recognized that I was a, you know, very good ball player who knew how to play the game. And again, that that goes back to coaches Bob Westoff and Joe Hicks and others that I've had. So I think that's what he saw in me. And you know, and I was always very, like I said, you know, very tenacious. Had that little man uh, complex <laughs> growing up. Always small. Always having to prove myself against bigger guys. Always competed with bigger guys, and, and and I did well, but nothing exceptional until after I, you know, got out of high school and then started growing a little bit, got a little stronger, and as my dad would say, "Katie bar the door, here he comes." <laughs> so you head to Williamsport in the Eastern League, where you hit 260 at the Mets Double A affiliate for manager Roy Seavers. What was the hardest part of making that transition from college ball to now being a professional baseball player? Well. Playing every day, but I liked it. I liked it. But the, the problem is, I, I didn't play. The, they told me I'd be starting center field as soon as I got there. Well, you know that, that never happened. And it took me about a week before they finally put me in. And then I, I, I started playing center field. The guy that was playing center field, they said he was really a good defensive player, never made errors, and you know just really a good player and won awards or something. I, I don't know if he won any awards, but. And I could see why he was, you know, why he didn't make any errors. The guy never went for anything. And I was just the opposite. I was very aggressive. I tried to catch everything. But uh, playing every day, I liked it and I enjoyed it. But I learned real quick that I had to adapt uh, to pro ball players because every guy you face was a very good pitcher in college. You know, one out of three guys would maybe be a decent pitcher. In the minor league, especially AA Eastern League, which is a pitcher's league, uh, I mean, these, we had Kemmer Brett there and, you know, guys on our team. I think, you know, Nolan played in the Eastern League and uh, uh, Gary 
you know, Gentry played in the Eastern League. I mean, you, I mean, the line, Eastern right. League is a heck of a baseball league. And uh, I just learned it. I better, I better learn to adapt. I wouldn't be, you know, progressing uh, in pro baseball. And then, you know, one, I don't know when it was, Mark. It was the weirdest thing during that season. Maybe it was a month into the season or a month and a half into the season. I was there. Something just clicked. In my brain, like a light went on, and you've heard that expression before, yeah. and maybe it's overused. But it did. In my brain, there's something clicked, and I started to really understand the professional game of baseball at that time. Yeah, it's interesting because it's it's so obvious. The following season, that Double A team moves from the Eastern League to the Texas League, from Williamsport to Memphis, and you know whatever clicked continued because you tear up the league. You lead the league with 160 hits. You bat 309. You have 25, you know, stolen bases as well. You're in a Texas League All-Star berth, so things definitely, you know, click. You then report to the Mexican Winter League again, batting over 300. That gets you an invitation to training camp in St. Petersburg in 1969. You walk into to training camp, and there's Gil Hodges. What's your first remembrance of your first impression of Gil Hodges? Well, you know, I I, I don't really remember the first time I met him, but. He was always quiet, you know. He never said anything, you know. And before I go on to Gill, who, who was my favorite baseball subject of the Mets, um, when I was in the Eastern League hitting 260, I think I was in the top ten in hitting there. Okay, it shows you what kind of league it was. We had there was one 300 hitter, and that was Bernie Smith. He was a third baseman on our team, and he hit 300 on the nose, I think, and he never got a shot at the big leagues. And but. The difference in leagues, the next year the Mets had moved their double-A from Williamsport to Memphis, like you said. And I, I did lead the league in hits and all that. But the next year, I hit three, three I thought I hit 310, but you know, the record showed 3-9 but, uh, and led the league in hits. But I thought I actually, and maybe I didn't, but I, I thought I actually did better in the Eastern League than I did in the Texas League, even though I hit 50 points higher. It's it just it's just a difference in leagues. The ballparks are better. You, lights are better. Uh, pitching was still good, but uh, I think the, you know because of the better facilities, I hit higher. Going into spring training in '69, obviously, you know they I guess they had to protect me and probably Gary and you know Duffy and a few others who had signed in '67. Uh, I went in with the impression I was going to make the ball club. Uh, that's how I, you know, that, that's the kind of confidence I developed over the last previous years in my development in the game. Uh, but meeting Gil, I, you know, I, he just was so quiet. And don't ever remember him really talking to me too much or anybody else. Uh, and he, he, you know, unless he was, you know, given the starting lineup in spring training and I'm in it. But, I, you know, he was just a, such a quiet uh dignified, strong personality who didn't talk. So when a guy doesn't talk, you don't know what to think. You don't know if he likes you, dislikes you, what. But I, I think if you talk to most of the guys on our team, uh, they all probably felt the same way. He just wasn't, wasn't a big talker. Rod, this is A.J. Carter. So what is it then about, everybody talks about Gil Hodges, you, everybody says he was a great manager. He was a manager who turned the franchise around from the, from the last place to ninth place and then 69. What was it about him as a manager as opposed to other managers that made him so good, that made him, got him the credit for helping to turn the franchise around? One, a strong personality, but more important, smart guy. He knew the game of baseball. He knew, we knew what we had to do. He didn't even tell us what we had to do. We knew what we had to do. And without really 
uh, him having to tell us. I mean, sure, sure, there were times when you'd have meetings and get a little fired up at us for certain things. But if you look at that ball club in '69, I mean, we didn't make many mistakes. I mean, uh, it, 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 even with all the number of young guys we had in that club, you know, Wayne Garrett and myself and Gentry and Duffy and all, uh, we knew how to play the game pretty well. And Gil instilled confidence in us that he knew that we could play well, and uh, we did. I mean. You know, again, the 69 is a little different year than I think any year in the history of baseball. It was a different, different year. You know, everything we did, especially later on, you know, in August, after August, um, was just incredible. Some of the plays we made, you know, our team, the record in the last, what, 45 games or 48 games. I mean, uh, but, I mean, we, as you know, you probably know better than I do, we had some amazing games and incredible games. And, won games in incredible fashion, uh, which, of course, I'm very happy that we did because it, sol- I mean, it was a solid, solid team. And I remember Tom Seaver was on this program that Bob Costas uh, used to have. Maybe he still does. He, he's interviewing Seaver, and, and he asked Tom, he says, you know, you, you guys beat Baltimore in the World Series. Uh, it, it, and he said to Tom, he says, if you guys played Baltimore ten in ten uh, series, uh, how many do you think you'd win? You know, I thought Tom would say, yeah, four, maybe five. He said, we'd probably win at least seven. <laughs> so if a guy like Seaver can say that, who's a pretty good ball player, huh? number one vote getter in the Hall of Fame until Nolan Ryan, uh, if a guy like Tom can say that, uh, you know we had a pretty good team. I think one of the best teams of all time, of course, but I'm prejudiced in that area. It's so interesting. If people have followed me on Facebook over the last couple of months since it's the 50th anniversary, I've been going back through the newspaper archives and posting, you know, whatever it was 50 years ago, and you could see the trajectory. Now, in reading Eric Sherman's great book that that just came out about the the 69 team, you know, he's got you talking about how when you were sitting in the dugout, you felt you were better than the guys in the outfield, and you exuded this confidence. But there's a couple of things that transpired that really helped you get playing time in spring training that may have opened up Gil's eyes. So first of all, one of them was the fact that Gil was not you know, sold on Ed Charles you know, that spring as the everyday third baseman. So he experiments with Amos Otis at third base. He's also not you know, that convinced that Ed Cranepool is going to be the everyday first baseman. So he, experience, he experiments with Cleon Jones at first base, which then opens up some playing time for you. But then the thing that really opens up playing time is Archansky has a back issue. He goes back north. He's not there for spring training. You tear it up. At what point during camp did you feel, I've got this team made? Well, it started with Art, who, by the way, with him and Eric writing that book, you know, Art, uh, and I think he's been on your program. Art has too, but you know they got a great book out, and I hope people buy it. By the way, I have a book coming out too. I didn't know if you knew that. No, but, it did not. <laughs> tell all your listeners. Yeah, I'd be, it, absolutely. I don't think it's sell many, but it, you know, uh, David Russell contacted me. Oh man, well over a year ago. He's a, a sports guy, and uh, he contacted me. Well over a year ago, and we wrote a book. I think it's called Rod Gasper, The Miracle Met, something like that. Love it. But anyways, I guess it should be coming out within before the 50th reunion. But anyway, in spring training, what happened uh, was that, of course, with uh, Cleon going to first base, 
I kind of forced that issue after Art got hurt, and then uh, I was, you know, they didn't. The mess didn't plan on keeping me. That they, they, I mean, Gil didn't even know who I was. Or Yogi didn't. I mean, the, nobody knew who I was. And uh, when Gil, when Art got hurt, and he had a history of back problems, it opened up a spot for me to go on a road trip with the Mets. And when I went on the trip, Gil started me in the, in the game, and then I, he started me the next 14 games. I, I went on like a 14-game hitting streak. So they were kind of forced to keep this guy, this rookie guy, who was, who was supposed to be designated for AAA Jacksonville. And then what also happened, when I started going well in spring training, then Gil started experimenting with putting Cleon Jones at first base, and because I was kind of pressure, you know, making a move to make the club, and like you said, you know, Ed was going to sit for a while, I guess, and that, you know, that lasted I don't know how long, but so just because of my playing well in 1969, uh, you know, I forced a lot of issues, uh, you know, a few issues on the club, which I'm glad I did, uh, made us a better club, stronger club. So uh, I was in shape year-round for years anyways. I played winter ball forever. And uh, you know, I went down to Mexico and in the winter of 68 after you know, the season in Texas League and uh, did well, hit well, like you said. And, you know, I, and, and I was in shape, made the club, thankfully. And uh, as you know, uh, <laughs> the rest is history. <laughs> You know, we talked in the intro about you leading all National League outfielders in double plays. None are more memorable than the seven-two-three-five double play. Yeah. Do you know what I'm referring to? And if you do, could you fill our audience in? And it's also interesting because, you know, like Gio Gonzalez always does well at City Field. Whenever you played on the West Coast that season, something you know special happened, whether it be a home run off of Mike McCormick or a triple that that won a game in San Diego. But this. You know, double play was something to behold. Well, you know, it's, it, it, it was the best play ever made. I, <laughs> I was always, I always loved playing defense. And of course, we're playing the Giants since the bottom of the ninth, and uh, uh, we, I'm playing left field, and uh, Tommy's in uh, center field, and and uh, Ronnie Sabota's in right. We have the McCovey shift on. So I'm playing like in left center center field, you know, because McCovey's a pool hitter, obviously. Tug's pitching. Tug McGraw, he's pitching. He throw and this guy named Bob Berta is on first base with one out. Tug throws McCovey a screwball out, you know, outside part of the plate and reaches out and he hits a like a nine iron high pop, well, fly ball I should say, down the left field line. And I think I'm not sure what the dimensions were at. Candlestick Park, Candlestick Park. I think they're probably 325, 330 down the line. Well, the ball hit right in front of the uh, warning track, and you know how Candlestick was. It was it was built on a bay. It was real wet up there and yucky there playing, and uh, the ball kind of stuck in the grass about oh a couple feet from the warning track. So I was probably you know a little bit probably over 300 feet from home plate. But I knew I had the ball game. You know, that's the ball game. Either I get the ball, throw it home, or, you know, get the guy out or we lose the game. I get to the ball, pick it up bare hand, pivot, and just hopped. Pivot, took a hop. I didn't take any steps. And that's another subject I could talk to you about. I didn't take a lot, take many steps. I just pivot, hopped with my left foot, turned, 
and fired from that point in front of the rewarding chap, the home plate, and threw a rocket to the guy. And Jerry Crowley, our catcher, he caught it. And tagged out. I mean, we had Berta by 15 feet. I mean, we had him easy. Jerry, it shocked Jerry so much that he caught the ball, tagged Berta out, threw it back to the pitcher's mound, and then he, and then he said in a later article, he says, oh, crap. He said, there's only two outs. But thankfully, Clendenin was a heads-up player, great great ball player, picked it up, and McCovey started going to third. He threw the Bobby foul at third, and we got a double play on it. Next inning, Clendenin hits a home run, Mets win again. Yeah, unbelievable. Oh, it was, you know, and then recently somebody, uh, I guess Jerry has been hard to track down to get interviews with, you know, over the years. But I guess recently some guy, you know, got a hold of him and uh, did an interview. And among other things, Jerry brought up that play that I did in San Francisco when I threw the ball from the warning track, almost to the from the warning track to him. And Jerry said, "You know, it surprised the." He said, "It surprised the heck out of me." Grody <laughs> said this because I couldn't believe he threw it that far on the line to get this guy. And you know, a heads up a player and a smart catcher Grody was, but it, it surprised him. It shocked him. So probably for an instant, he was thinking, "Uh oh." After he threw that ball to the pitchers now, but he brought that up again, and, and, uh, and I saw him a number of years ago in Texas, and he brought that play up to me again then too. So it it was a play that stuck in people's minds. Absolutely, uh, you know the Mets are going to be celebrating the 50th anniversary of that 1969 team with a special weekend in June. What is the thing that you're looking forward to most about that weekend? Oh, seeing my buddies. Seeing my former player, uh, ex, you know, my former uh, teammates, uh, uh, I, I don't know. I think there's going to be 15 of us there. I, I think, I, uh, obviously, Tom can't make it, and Jerry, Gary Gentry's not doing very well. And um, But I guess the, uh, uh, except for Kenny Boswell, uh, the rest of the guys are, are going to be there. Uh and I just I look forward to seeing them, and uh, they're just such a good group. <laughs> they are a wonderful, wonderful group of guys. Rod, you know, thanks so much for your time tonight. More importantly, thanks for being part of a magical season that that actually captured my nine-year-old heart, which no doubt is a major reason why I, I still love the Mets to this day. We're looking forward to your book, and when the book comes out, we'd love to have you back on. I mean, we we can talk 1969 Mets every single week we and never get seen, tired of it. We have more on. <laughs> Yeah, isn't, isn't that incredible? Six. I mean, those people, the Mets fans are the best. I mean, New York, I mean, it's just incredible. And, you know, they remember a guy like me. You know, I wasn't a special player. I mean, I, you know, I, I, did a, I did a good job for them, just like Wayne did and, and uh, you know, the rest of the young guys. We all did our job. But, I mean, the people there are so nice. They, they, I mean, I tell people. I get, these Mets fans know more about Gasper than I know about myself, and they're incredible. <laughs> well, it, you know what? We're going to try to start a movement here because AJ just brought up a, a good point. He yeah. wants to know, and I think if we, we flesh it out, it might be dead even. Right. I think we've had almost mostly every member of the 69 as well as 86 team. But here's an interesting thing, all right? Okay. The Mets could retire 
number 17 because it's been part of the 69 championship right. and the 86. Keith Hernandez and Rod Gaspar. I'd like to see <laughs> right. the, the number 17. It's interesting. You didn't wear 57 that you had in spring training. You got yeah. number 17 once the season started. But we look forward to the book, and thanks so much for coming on tonight, Rod. Oh, you're welcome, Mark. Appreciate it. You got it. Rod Gaspar, member of the 1969 World Championship New York Mets.